My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Tim Hill. He's a former British Army infantry soldier, PSYOPs operator, has uh, done seven operational deployments in that capacity, and he's the host of the Ordinary People's Extraordinary Stories podcast. He's got quite an incredible history, great story, um, awesome podcast. I know that uh, you guys will enjoy uh, what we're about to dig into. So, um, Tim, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and having this conversation with me. No, absolutely. My pleasure, Dave. Looking forward to it. Where were you born and raised? We'll start off there. I was born in a, a, a absolute tiny little place. It was well, it was it was two cottages and a farm at the back of the De Havilland factory. Now, if you know of De Havilland, during the Second World War, they built the Mosquito um, aircraft there, and then after the war, they built the Comet. And we lived just at the back of there. I was born on this farm, and. Uh, was there for about a year before we moved into a place called Welling Green, uh, which is just outside Hatfield, which is about 20 miles north of London. And Hatfield at the time was becoming a, a kind of new town uh, after the Second World War because they were rebuilding. Um, I mean, London got flattened and and the, the East Enders and North London types moved out into the to the suburbs and um, into these new towns and Hatfield was one of those and uh, we kind of moved out and uh, the area that I grew up in was pretty rough you know, and uh, with us kids they taught us how to, 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 to fight first they had to put the dukes up and they were, they had to fight before you could walk um, and then when you went out you still got <laughs> still ended up getting a clump for somebody <laughs> so uh, yeah it was a pretty rough area that we we grew up in and, and I mean East London, North London is is used to be really tough people, and um, it gave us a good grounding. Really, I mean, I had a great great time growing up as as a kid. You have many siblings. Kind of, yeah. I've got um, I've got two actual sisters. I've got a half sister. I've got a half brother. Um, I think that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> parents split up when I was about eight or nine and um, they both ended up remarrying and, and, and having our kids so um, but I was I was a I was never really at home as a kid was always off out with me mates um, I mean sun comes up we go out so sun goes down and we're probably still out <laughs> so yeah my mother never knew where I was ever <laughs> i got into so much trouble you wouldn't believe but um it was fun growing up um school for me wasn't um wasn't brilliant 
it's it's some years just a few years ago um finally found out i'm dyslexic um and that had a, had a bit of an effect on on my schooling originally um but the major thing that had a, a, an effect on my schooling was uh the injustice that um that befell me um i was being picked on by a bully and uh this is this is i was i must have been only about six or seven uh, and there was this bully in the in the class and and he started to pick on me this uh, and i went home and i had a word with the old man because they were still married at the time and i said here dad i've got this bully who's picking on me what should i do about it he said well son what you need to do is when he starts give him a right good thump and he says make it a good one because if you don't you're going to get a good hiding and <laughs> he said you're probably going to get a good hiding anyway but he'll get your respect and he'll leave you alone. Anyway, goes in school the next day. All anybody saw was me thump him. <laughs> him go flying back into the school pond. I get dragged off to the headmaster's head office and I get six of the best. <laughs> I, I mean, you couldn't make it up. Uh, and I felt really injustice. And I, I, I took an instant dislike into school after that. Uh, and I wasn't brilliant. I'm, I'm not a brilliant academic, but um, I'm fairly practical when it comes to the sort of sticking a bayonet on and putting it in people and <laughs> shooting and, and and running around with big heavy packs on my back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, what uh, what led you to join the army? Good question. Up until the age of ten, I was probably going to be a farmer because we used to you know, build on a farm. Used to go down to my granddad's farm, which was just outside Brighton on the south coast, a place called Peacehaven. Uh, I did quite a bit of growing up down there. The granddad, he was a head pigman on the pig farm. And um, and I wanted to follow me, me uncle's footsteps. He went off to agricultural college and all the rest of it. So up until the age of 10, I was going to be a going to be a farmer. And we looked at going into, I was going to go into this agricultural boarding school. Uh, so I went to take the, the, the entrance test for that um, because of my lack of schooling, um, failed it miserably. And then I had to switch focus then. And I thought, well, I can't be a farmer. Might as well go and join the army. <laughs> and then then when it came to time, uh, 14 and three quarters was the first time you can go and take the test to see whether you can go in the army. So I did that and uh, failed that pretty miserably as well. And the recruiting sergeant, he says to me, son, if you can't uh, if you can't read and write proper like what I does, you've got no chance of coming in the army. You better go and have a <laughs> sort yourself out. Well, I mean, that was a bit of a blow. That weekend, I took a long, long, hard look at myself, give myself a right stern talking to. Monday morning, I went into school and I went to every class. I spent most of the time hopping away. I never went to school hardly ever, and I went every class that week. Half the teachers thought I was a new student; they'd never seen me before. <laughs> so I kind of knuckled down for about six months, and um, and learned a few things, and then went back uh, with a mate uh, back to the recruiting office, and we sat down and so on. He says, "Oh, you back then? Yeah, I've done some learning." I said, <laughs> "He said, right." He said. There's the papers, boys. I've got to nip out and do something. 
do do the questions and I'll come back in and see how you get on. So anyway, we might give us a few of the answers and uh, I managed to get a place as a, a junior soldier at the age of 16 uh, and then went off to the, the depot, the Queen's Division um, up in a place called Bassingbourne Barracks in Royston, Hertfordshire and uh, never really looked back. Wow. Now, can you tell me a little bit about the, the path that led you into PSYOPs? I'd done my time in, in the regular service and I came out and I went into the to the reserves. Um, and the first reserves I went into was 2-1 um, Special Air Service Regiment, uh, the second uh, C Squadron, um, a place called Hitchin in Hertfordshire because that's where I was living. And um, about, about six months into it, we were on final tests um, up in the Welsh mountains and... Uh, Dark o'clock at night, about 19 hours into the final march. Um, I'm carrying about 75, 60, 70 pounds. And um, my foot's gone down a rabbit hole. I stayed in one place and my body's sort of gone round it with a pack and everything like that. And I woke up in hospital with a broken leg. <laughs> wow. So that ended that, that, uh, that bit of a career. And then I went on to what I called regular reserve for a while. And then I managed to join uh, another TA unit, a, a reserve unit. And um, two years into that, I got recruited onto what was known then as 15 UK Psychological Operations Group because of some of the stuff I'd done in my past. My wife um, worked for a printer, uh, just a local printer. And occasionally I'd go in and help them out run a, a single kind of Heidelberg press. And so I understood the press, uh, the, the print process and stuff like that. Um, and that was one of the skill sets that they wanted on the group. And uh, there you go. Um, I got recruited onto there. And um, when I got recruited on, he says, um, if, if the need arises in the future, would you be prepared to, to deploy on an operational tour? Yeah, don't see why not. <laughs> six months later, I'm on my way to Kosovo. <laughs> wow. Having spent six months on the group, learning the discipline, um, and I spent a year in Kosovo, and it was a really good training ground for me, personally. Um, I was able to pick up lots of new skills, um, not just on the print side of life, um, but also on the radio side of life. We, we had a commercial radio station out there that we we set up um, called Radio Galaxia um, off the back of the one that we had in Bosnia, which was Radio Radio Oxygen. So we had two radio stations that we were running locals, uh, one thing. And so I learned a lot of the, the radio. And when I came back from from there, I, I kind of went over to the radio side of it rather than the print side. I mean, quite a few guys in the print section at that time uh, but nobody really on the radio side. So I, I picked up the, the baton and, and started learning the, the radio side of it. And uh, then we went to Macedonia um, the following year in 2001 when 9-11 um, when happened. Uh, five months later, I'm flying into Kabul mm. um, on my first tour of Afghanistan. And I must say, I really enjoyed Kabul. It was a really good posting, but really good operational tour. Um, 
that time that the city was fairly benign for us. Um, we were welcomed. There was not a lot of traffic about at the time when we first got there. Um, you hardly saw any females on the street. Um, by the time I left on the 20th of June, um, there was traffic jams everywhere. There was women wandering around without burkas on. And uh, yeah, it was quite a, 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 a good vibe about the city uh, uh, until 2002. Um, and we had a great, no, we had a great time. And then, um, and then I ended up going to Iraq. Um, Iraq wasn't a great tour for me. I didn't enjoy it much at all. Um, I was tasked, the tasking I had was to come up with a campaign to enhance the perception of the Iraqi police service in the eyes of the locals. Now, <laughs> pretty much on a hide into nowhere with that, the Iraqi police service had been corrupt and and untrusted for decades under Saddam Hussein and yeah I mean I had a bit of fun going around uh, I, I traveled around quite a bit of um of southern Afghan uh, uh, southern Iraq um I went up to places like uh, Samwa where the Dutch were working and they had the Japanese come there for the first time that was a that was a a, a good little campaign we run there um letting the locals know that the Japanese were coming in first time they'd left operate they've gone on an operational tour outside of japan since the second world war so that was that was quite a thing um and they were coming in to do a pacific engineering task to, to build a i think a, a school and bits and pieces like that that we're gonna do um so that they would they were put in a fairly safe area um, and then I worked with the Italians in uh, Nazaria. I mean, that was great fun. I, I spent a, quite a lot of time going up to to Nazaria to where where the Italians were and stopping overnight. And uh, and they they were their food was good, <laughs> the wine was good. Yeah. So that was fun. Um, went over to Alamora. Nearly didn't come back from there. Um, got into a bit of a dust up with some nasty people. Went up to Baghdad. We, we went up for a conference, me and the boss, to, to a SIOPS conference that was going to be held in the, the green zone. So we flew up from from, Bas uh, from Basra to Baghdad on a Herc. The guys that was looking after us, we had two sort of pickup type trucks. Um, so we they were going to take us from Camp Victory into uh, into the green zone, into in the centre of Baghdad. And um, just as we get into the gate to go out, this other convoy of two Humvees and a and another pickup truck pushed away out in front of us. We followed them about, I don't know, 30 seconds, maybe a minute behind them. Halfway in the back deck, boom. Um, they got blown up. Uh, that would have been us. Um, I thought that was decisively unfriendly. Um, there was... As far as I could see, within within half a minute, uh, a helicopter came in and started dealing with them, and I think there was about at least three dead, um, and, and quite a few casualties. We were just waved on to go straight into, and then the security sort of called and called, sort of ramped up outside the the green zone, and we sat out there. I mean, 
bricking it slightly, um, <laughs> thinking this is not nice, stuck outside. Um, and then we finally got in. We had the meeting. Managed to get back to Camp Victory um, without incident. That evening we were sat on a, the, we were we were housed in this single floor building that you could go onto the roof and they had one of these pot fire things. I don't know if you've seen them. And we sat around having a few near beers because the Americans aren't allowed to drink beer when they're on. Uh, so a near beer is a sort of alcohol free beer. Uh, so we we sat out there sort of chewing the fat a bit. And um, all of a sudden a burst of about, I don't know, 20 or 30 5 rounds came whizzing over our heads um, within inches of us and uh, managed to uh, kill a sentry on the gate. Um, I thought that was a bit antisocial. And then the following day, we were due to fly back down to, to Basra and um, the whole place was orange. Never seen anything like it. Everywhere was orange. And we would we we managed to jump on the aircraft and just got off and uh announcement came over to Tanoi saying that um, that's lucky. They've just shut the airport. We're <laughs> five minutes later we would have been stranded there for a few days. Wow. Right. So yeah. Baghdad wasn't a nice place. <laughs> and then I I ended up doing another two tours of um Afghanistan in, in Helmand province and had had some fun. Um I was out on one patrol um and, and got brassed up nine hours in contact. How we didn't lose anybody is, is a miracle. Um we took out quite a lot of Taliban. Um we got five hundred uh, dropped a five hundred pound on them in the end to get us out of there. But yeah, it was uh it was almost out of one round of man <laughs> sort wow. of situation and running out of water and yeah. The only the only good part about that is that it lightened your load. And when I was, I was actually carrying uh, when we when we got onto the ground forty two kilos. That's that's over half my body weight. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a hell of a lug. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that was a that was a tasty <clears throat> day. What year was it when you joined? I joined the army on the fifth of August, nineteen seventy four. And I retired from the army on the, the 4th of April, 2018. Holy shit. 44 years under the colours. Man, <laughs> boy, regular and reserve. Wow. That's incredible. That's an incredible career. And and in there, so when I was reading about you, I, I, I read that you were a hang gliding instructor. You played yeah. a lot of rugby. You yeah competed as a, a skier um yeah telemark skier not not just a just a not a normal skier telemark uh, and what is telemark? telemark it's free hill skiing it's um it's a cross between sort of cross-country skiing and downhill skiing so you've got downhill equipment um plastic boots have uh, uh, changed the way that we ski i used to ski on leather skis for donkey's years and pusses planks so <laughs> and they used to do a lot of touring but um when the the plastic boots came out um i i converted over to plastic boots and never went back and uh 
yeah, downhill skiing, racing downhill is great fun. It's it's it's, it's a great spectator spectator sport. It's much better than you know. You see the alpine racing, and it's just boring like they they're just screaming down. Well, telemark racing is it's screaming down, <laughs> but it's going through the same sort of gates. But we add a few bits of uh, interest into it. Should we say there's a there's a jump that we have to go over. And you have to clear a certain distance. Um, and a jump can be anything from sort of uh, a foot high to sort of six foot high. And you, you have to clear, clear a distance. So, and that's on the way down. Then you get a, um, what they call a wrap. Uh, it's a 360 degree sort of bowl that you have to ski around. Uh, and then you, you, you've got a skate section to finish off. And they normally make it uphill. <laughs> just, wow. just to, I mean, you imagine coming down through sort of 40 gates over a jump round the wrap and then you're on about 400 meter skate section and half of it's going uphill you are breathing heavily yeah. <laughs> at the end of it but it was yeah i mean I, I did that for quite a lot of years i mean the last time i went i just looking um recently six years ago uh, i last competed wow um and I went skiing this year, actually. <laughs> the other week, I went into to one of the indoor ski centres uh, and I had a couple of hours showing off, basically. <laughs> you went from being uh, almost illiterate, uh, an illiterate kid from a rough part of the UK to going into the army and then becoming part of an elite group and being extremely successful in that role. And what would you attribute that to? Just grit and determination or, you know, just unrealized intelligence? The uh, the values and standards that the British Army instill in you, um, I think that had a big part to do with it. I think, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not thick by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, yes, I'm dyslexic, um, but I stick with it, um, and and I don't like to be beaten. So it's just that dogged um, determination to 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 make sure I don't look like a right wally, basically. Um, so I I've, I've worked at, at reading and and stuff over the years. I've, I've read loads of books. Um, it just takes a little bit more time. I mean, the Harry Potter series, God, when that came out, I couldn't wait for the next one. And, um, yeah, I've read them about four times, I think. Um, I used to collect, um, I used to be a big collector of um, escape stories from the Second World War. Um, and, and me and my best mate, we, we used to collect them and we tried to find first editions and stuff like that. So... And uh, we had a really big collection and we used to uh, swap them about between each other and read them and and review them and stuff like that. So, yeah, I had a real passion for, for reading that sort of stuff. Um, so it, it, it's one of those things that just kind of, you get better at it. Um, but when I finally realised that the, the dyslexia, it made an awful lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now what what is the difference between you know psyops and like a propaganda operation? 
Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's quite simple. Um, what we do is psychological operations and the, the uh, what that really is, it's planned operations against a known target audience to change an attitude and a behaviour. So that's psychological operations. What the enemy does is propaganda, lies and deception. Gotcha. Basically, yeah. The enemy does propaganda. We do psychological operations. So it just depends on which side you're on then. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, it's it's kind of military marketing. It's just trying to, it, rather than sell a product, it's trying to change an attitude and a behaviour, and that's really what it's it, it's there to do. Um, lots of people think there's lots of cloak and dagger <laughs> involved in it and skullduggery, um, but. At the end of the day, it, it's just understanding the target audience that you're trying to influence to have that change in attitudes and the behaviour. Um, and that's that's really what psychological operations are all about. And I was pretty good at it. <laughs> can, can you discuss like any examples of, of what you would do? Yeah, yeah. Um, for instance, um, before you, before you go on a, an operational tour, we we start about six months prior to to going on to an operation deployment. So we do have pre-deployment training. So we train for the operation that we're going on, and we start off with obviously some some low level um, personal skills and drills, um, just to bring your your military skills up to date. Um, your, your weapon handling skills, that sort of thing. At the same time, you're starting to read in to the operation that you're going on. You're getting the, what the commander's mission is. Then you're looking at the target audiences that you want to try and, or, or the commander wants to try and influence to change an attitude and behaviour. And that involves a huge amount of uh, of reading, basically reading into the target audience so you're looking at, you're looking at all the open source information so you're going onto the internet you're, you're finding news articles you're finding stuff about the the, the people you're, you're doing that, looking at a country study so you, you're trying to build up a picture of what the target audience is and who they are particularly with the afghans is really really complicated they they operate under a thing called Pashto Wali and it's their their way of life, their ethos um, and you could have two warlords that have been trying to kill each other's villages for donkey's years but you get an outsider tries to intervene and they'll turn on him as, a, as one and you yeah, because they, they've been killing each other for years and now they've got to be friends to fight you. Yeah, so it, it's trying to get into their mindset and trying to understand what's likely to have a, a, 
an influence on them to be able to change that attitude or behavior and and then we take part we 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 attach ourselves to a a command headquarters that we're going to be working with so we go on all their exercises their pre-deployment training exercises their command task um exercises the tabletop exercise so we 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 go around the battle groups. We get known in the battle groups. Um, we we do briefings on what we do, how we do it, what we need them to do for us. Like um, when the guys go out on the ground, we may give them uh, a questionnaire to try and get filled in, trying to gain information all the time. All the time, we 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 we're getting in information um, from patrols on the ground about the target audience and it's all to do with trying to get inside their mindset find out what's likely to influence them and to uh to to do the best products that we can that, that's going to achieve that um and that's really what it comes down to it's, it's knowing the target audience and it's doing the research into to understanding them what were some of the actions that that you took to help influence these different uh tribal uh groups um there, there was quite a lot of campaigning stuff going on there was because we were working in in helmand province which is a, a, a fairly big province and it, it ranges from sort of kajaki up in the north where the dam is and they're a different type up there. And then you come down through the, the green zone, uh, the Sangin Valley, uh, and they're slightly different factions in there as well. And then you come down to sort of Goresh and Lashkagar, and then you come right down south to um, Garmasia, um, and across to Musakala. So there's lots of different types of people in that area. Um, but one of the things that my main responsibility was for was for the, the radio side. And um, we came up with putting in what we call radio in a box. And it's uh it's it's literally that it's a radio station in a box. So you've got a 50 watt um transmitter, FM transmitter with a media case. So you you've you've got a mixer desk on there, um, a couple of microphones and a laptop um to play some music out on and, and you put it there and we'll up set it all up and you use a laptop uh, and a couple of interpreters to to be DJs the guys that are running the, the interpreters as radio producers so I'd go out I'd, I'd teach the um the interpreters to be radio presenters and and how best to do it uh, and I had a couple of really good ones down south in Garmacia that bounced off each other like um, like a good little radio show. Uh, and they were playing some music and stuff like that. And we had a massive, massive uh, success down there. I've been down there for a few days um, teaching the guys this, that and the other how to put the radio show together, sort of a radio wheel, where you put your ads in, how you put the news in and um, how you play the music through. And, so we were doing that 
and uh, we were ready to we we're going to go live the following morning but we thought we'd do a test in the afternoon just for for half an hour or so so i've gone gone and we switched it on booming out live uh so we just test it around the um sort of little radios around the um the compound just to make sure that it was actually going out and uh they've been on for about half an hour they'd played a few tunes and, and had a bit of a chat and a little while later, after we'd gone off the air, there was there was a couple of blokes approaching the camp, uh, and the, the guards on the gate were, were getting a bit jumpy, and they were holding up bits of paper, and they come to the to the gate. <laughs> Can you give this to the radio people? <laughs> they, they wanted they wanted a request playing for them and their mates. <laughs> <laughs> so we went live the following morning, mentioned these the these couple of guys and. Uh, but then I don't. They'd only been live for about twenty minutes. There's there half a dozen people walking towards the camp holding up bits of paper. Wow! So, so over the next couple of days, we must have had about three or four hundred bits of paper, all coming from blokes. And I thought, right, what's a couple of Afghan girls' names? So they came up with a couple of girls. Right, mentioned that. Uh, these girls have asked their brother to bring in this this uh, message uh, for them and their girlfriends. And uh, a little while later, we had, I don't know, two dozen letters from girls asking for, for music for their mates. And if that's not a measure of effect of a, a radio station going live, I don't know what is. So within... Within the space of about four days, we 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 had about a couple of thousand letters uh, requests coming in from from locals that had listened to it, wow. and um, and we just uh, because we had patrol paces that had pushed down um, about ten k's, ten fifteen kilometers south of the the, the district um, centre. Um, we sent them down there with radio so they could pick it up down there. So we knew how far we were pushing out. And um, uh, and we worked really hard on this particular village to clear out the Taliban and push them south down towards Quetta's border. Um, and that radio station was 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 doing great guns. Um so that's that was that was a big, big success. And we had similar successes. Uh, around the other bazaars as well, where we put these radios in and uh, people coming for requests. So yeah, it was a good measure of effect that people were actually listening to, to what we were putting out. Uh, so we knew our messages were getting out um, and we did lots of product testing uh, of the, the the messages. I mean, lots of it was just um, just sort of news stories, that sort of thing. But if we wanted something that was going to have an impact on on changing people's attitude persuasion, um, then we'd work a little bit harder on it. We'd, we'd product test it with the with the local Afghans that we've got working for us, and 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 bits and pieces like that. And then that then we come up with the right sort of script and push that out. That's a part mm -hmm. that a lot of people don't hear about or know about. You know, I mean, this is the first time I've ever heard of of that side of mm. uh of the war you know well we we, we had a, a program um when i was there in 2006 we decided that um we were going to do this 
radio series called uh, we called it the Afghan Archers, uh, and we called it the Afghan Archers because in the UK there's the longest running radio serial show in the world. It's called the Archers, and it's been going for I don't know how many years, but I mean it's going when I was a kid, so it's been going for well over sixty odd years. And so we, we and it's about a farming community basically. Um, so we decided that we were going to um, do this series, and the first first one we wrote the script and it got the boys to to translate it, and and it didn't really work, and. Um, and I, 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 I spoke with the boys quite a lot about it, and and they said, well, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound um, proper. And one of my boys, he says, well, I used to do a bit of uh, uh, radio work and script writing. So I gave him a brief of of what we were going to do. And I think this this the second one that we did was um, it was something to do. There, there a bomb a bomb had gone off in in the local market. So we we sent it around that and and it was the the message in there was that that we should uh, if you know who who was uh, uh, who set it off or who planted it tell the authorities. So that was that was the message that we we wove into this this um, it's only about ten fifteen minutes long. So we wrote this script and uh, translated it back into English and you read it in English and it doesn't make much sense. I mean, it doesn't read right. So I put the two scripts together and I sent it up for approval because everything that we do has to be approved by the, the legal officer, the political officer, uh, before it goes to the commander. So, so we sent, sent these scripts out <laughs> and only landed on the desk for about five minutes. I got a call. <laughs> the commander wants to see you. All right. So, so I've gone and bagged my tabs in and give it give the this is a general mind, this is this is a, a the Grand Fromage that's yeah. <laughs> in charge of the, the whole operation where we were. He said, What is this? <laughs> ah so you say what else? Right. So I explained what why why we've done it this way. I said, I've got a scriptwriter who writes it in Pasto. Uh, and they translate it back into English. It doesn't make an awful lot of sense, but it does in Pasto, and that's who we're trying to influence. He said, I don't have a problem with that at all. Signed it off. And he, and he because the legal officer and the political officer was in there <laughs> waiting to chew me to pieces. <laughs> yeah. So so explain why we've done it the way we did it. And um, and and, and it, it worked really well. And we... We did about four episodes with blokes, and then um, I was doing some work with the the women's centre down in Lashkagal, and there was a woman in there that I'd first met in Kabul in two thousand two uh, at the lawyer Jerga. There was a big uh, the, the big countrywide lawyer Jerga was held in Kabul in two thousand two, and I saw this woman up on a stage, and 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 she spoke her piece and. Uh, I managed to get a little interview with her afterwards because um, I, I had uh, I had a Turk with me, and um, we did it because we were doing in Kabul. We were doing something called the ISAF News, and it was a tri-service, a tri-language newspaper, uh, all good news about what we were doing and stuff like that. So I went out English, Pashto, and Dari. So I'd, I'd met her up there in 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 two thousand two, and and 
she's down in Lashkar. She's I, I think she was a local councillor or something like that, but she she worked at the the, the women's centre. And 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 she remembered me, I remembered her, and we had a, a chat. And uh I said, would you be able to get some ladies together to to be able to record um a, a couple of episodes of this because she'd heard the show. I mean everybody had. And she said, Yes, we'd love to. So uh I got um Araf, my scriptwriter, to, to write a script for these ladies and uh they <laughs> we brought them into camp and we had a, a, a room set aside to, to to do the recordings and stuff. And we were in there for about four hours and they were going through the script and, and changing things and oh god, what's going on? <laughs> so, so we finally it took ten minutes. Boom, we did it in one hit. <laughs> Four hours, and then and then the record was bang, <laughs> and uh, and that went out and that went down a real storm, and um, and we did a second one, and then um, and then I left. <laughs> My tour was up, wow. um, and I, I'm not quite sure. I think they they try to carry it on afterwards, but then uh, a new broom comes in and uh, it, it, they want to change everything, so. We try to keep continuity in in the in what we call the PSE, the psychological support element. Um, but a new commander comes in, wants to make a mark, new broom and all that. And I mean, I've been working with three commando brigade with Royal Marines, and um, I think was it the Paris came in, sixteen air assault brigade came in, and yeah. Different barrel monkeys altogether that night. You wrap up your career in in the Royal Army, and you go back to the UK, and uh, you start a podcast. What? Well, what... no. Um, in two thousand nine, when my last tour of Afghanistan, I came back, and um, I had to move jobs. Um, I couldn't stay where I was in psyops. I've been there for the best part of 11 years. Um, and I got offered a couple of other jobs that I didn't really fancy. There was a, a job up the uh, I branch, which is the interrogation school, as an instructor, and I didn't really fancy that. Um, there was a, a job where I could go around the country doing counter-terrorist briefings. I didn't really fancy that either. And um, this welfare job came up in London. I thought, oh, that sounds different. New job, never they hadn't had this this role before, uh, so I went and had the interview, got the job. When I did the uh, the welfare officers course, and uh, and I started, and I had a blank piece of paper, <laughs> blank piece of paper, do what you want. <laughs> wow, you're in charge of the welfare for these blokes. So I've got, uh, I think it was about hundred and eight blokes on 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 the company strength, and and I'm in charge of their their welfare. And um, so welfare involves an awful lot of sport and, and adventurous training. <laughs> nice. And so that's where the was, hang gliding and the skiing. No, nah, and... the hang gliding was years before that. But um, I took guys um, gliding, uh, proper gliders. Um, I, I managed to get some guys out doing some gliding. I took guys um, sailing, did a lot of sailing. Took guys, we formed a rugby club, uh, a rugby team. Um, I took guys skiing, and uh, I had guys going off on adventures training 
um, up to Wales and doing some hill climbing and, and all that sort of thing. So I arranged an awful lot of adventurous training um, and fun stuff. Along with the, the ceremonial piece, I mean, the most, the main focus uh, in London is the ceremonial piece, um, which I think there's uh, not a person will disagree with me that we do it the best in the world. There's nobody does pomp and circumstance and ceremonial duties uh, like the British. Yeah. I... So I got involved with that quite a lot. And then I did that for eight years. Then I retired in 2018. Um, and did a bit of sailing. Uh, we had our own boat. We 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 sailed up to the Baltic. We sailed up from the, the English Channel up through um, the Kiel Canal. Spent some some time in Denmark and Sweden and up into Norway, and then sailed back down again. Um, and then the following year, we went into that lockdown, and. Uh, and I was starting to drink a little bit too much um, the old spiced rum. And I, I woke up one morning, I didn't have any, I, I don't suffer hangovers, that's the problem. I can drink half a litre or <laughs> a spiced rum, no problem at all. And I'm thinking, this is every night. <laughs> I've got to stop this. But I was working on ancestry and um, I found my great-grandfather who was in the Royal Navy and he lived about three miles from where I live now, across in Portsmouth. And um, he died in 1930. And I managed to find his, his sort of service record. Uh, and he was a chief stoker. Uh, and I thought, there's not a lot I can find out about him on his little bits. But um, I thought, his story's lost. Um, and I've got these skills from the radio days. Why don't I put them to use? And I started a podcast. So I did 24 half an hour episodes of my life. So for any of your listeners out there that suffer from insomnia <laughs> and need something to help them get to sleep, what? <laughs> uh, that's and awesome. then I got to the end of that and uh, we're still in lockdown. I thought, um, well, what do I do next? Well, I'll, I'll start doing other people. So that's what I've done. And I've just recorded number 149. Wow. Or 148. Yeah. Somewhere about that. Of other people. Yeah. And get their life stories. And that's what the Ordinary People's Extraordinary Stories is all about, is other people. When I talk to individuals that have the experience that you have, I like to try and get a sense of really their their leadership philosophy because i mean in the many roles that you've had you've learned or acquired some really incredible leadership skills it's all about influence being able to influence those that you're leading and i'm curious what what you've developed as far as your leadership philosophy and how you operate when you're leading other people? My philosophy is I, I like to lead by example. And I like to think that people look up to what I'm doing and they'll follow me um, 
end of thick and thin. And if I've got to start shouting and bawling at somebody, then I failed, basically. I've not done my job properly. I've not had that. I haven't gained their respect. I mean, it's quite funny. When when I first came back from Afghanistan and I went to to uh, this company of foot guards, <clears throat> I'm thinking, these blokes are going to be running rings around me. Um, and, a, and a sergeant major, he says, um, boys are going out. For, I've only been there for a, a, a day. And he said, boys are going out for, for a run in the morning. Do you want to join them? Okay. <laughs> thinking, oh, no. These, these young fellas, I mean, sort of 18, sort of 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds, they're going to be running rags out around a 53 year old. <laughs> anyway, so we've set off and we've, we, we've gone out and um, just in sort of uh, PT kit and we're, we're going for a run up what they should call Shooter's Hill. So it's only, it's only a couple of miles um, across Woolwich Common and then up Shooter's Hill, turn around and come back down again. <laughs> we, ain't, we ain't gone but half a mile and these lads are starting to drop back and I'm thinking, I need to start doing this. So I start, come on, come on, Julian along, come on, if you can't keep up with me, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> so I end up leading them up this hill. Uh, There's me worried about I'm not going to be able to keep up with them. <laughs> I think they were worried they couldn't keep up with me. Yeah, I was so... pretty fit back then. Uh, I must admit, I mean, six months in Afghanistan, um, I'm doing a, a lot of fizz when you get downtime, which wasn't a lot, but I mean, literally lugging stuff around day in, day out. Um, you, you, you maintain a, a pretty good level of fitness. So I was pretty fit. And you know, I was, I was, I was back playing rugby uh, for, for the local team where I lived. Um, Cause I traveled into London every day, um, which is about sort of 30 miles round. Um, so the weekends I was playing rugby. And so I was, I was pretty fit back then, and I needn't have worried. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I kind of, day two of the job, I, I gained an awful lot of respect uh, from the blokes. Um, and and so if I've got to start shouting at people, then I've, I've, I've failed. And, and that's the way. I, I, I like to lead by example. Um, I wouldn't ask them to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. Right. So, and that, that by and large, worked pretty well. For those listening, what would the best way for them to connect with you, learn more about you? Um, I, I know you've got uh, some social media accounts and uh, I mean, do you have a website set up for your podcast or anything like that? Yeah, there's the um, the Buzzsprout one that um, I load up all the the audio podcasts on and they go out across all the, the major platforms, Spotify, these uh, Apple and all the others. Um, there's YouTube um, and that's again, I mean, it's ordinary people's extraordinary stories and that will come up. Um, and yeah, I do a live stream, a couple of live streams a week as well. Um, we just started on a Tuesday um, I do an amazing, is it an amazing quiz and fun facts. Um, 
and that goes out at nine o'clock. Um, at the moment, British summertime, it will be GMT in a couple of weeks' time. And then on Thursday, I do um, taboos on a Thursday, uh, and that's a little bit more of a serious program where we're talking about taboos um, and trying to normalise the conversation about it to to help people feel comfortable about talking about things like death, bereavement, um, anxiety, depression, PTSD, you name it, those sort of subjects. We're trying to destigmatize suicide. Um, and it's it's just normalizing the conversation that, that you can have over a dinner table uh, and, and feel comfortable having. And that's that's the driving force behind that particular show. And where would uh, where would people find the live stream? Um, it goes out on um, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitch, and Twitter. So um, the the taboos on a Thursday goes out at seven pm until eight fifteen pm. Obviously, British summertime, Gremlins Dream time. The amazing quiz and fun facts goes out uh, on a, a Tuesday at nine o'clock. And so the podcasts uh, are up on YouTube and um, all the podcast apps. So if you want to listen to the audio version or you want to watch the people, I've had some terrific guests on. I've even had young Dave there. Yeah. He has a good story to tell. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It was a uh, was really good conversation. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, definitely. For for everyone listening, check out Tim's podcast and uh, check him out on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn. I'll have links in the show notes, so be sure to check him out, like, subscribe, all that. Um, yeah. This is uh, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. Well, hopefully um, somebody's learned something, something new that he didn't know. Yeah, well, I mean, I know I certainly did, and and I, I really appreciate you sharing so much of your story with us. And uh, yes, really incredible. Uh, it's awesome. Thank you so much. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.